all of you. Sorry for this delay tonight. Even the papers which I use for the quotes from Jesus, I couldn't find them, so I came with directly with some scanned files that I have. So, last time, commenting about what Jesus did and said, and trying to see what do we understand from the standpoint of yoga and tantra, I had a long commentary about the intermediary world, about the so-called demonic influences, and I made a long, long commentary showing that Theoretically, anything which is adverse to us would be considered in the demonic realm, but that modern metaphysics makes a very, very clear distinction between what is demonic and what is evil. You can say that uh, if I want to meditate, and if uh, there is a dog or a cat which disturbs me, That's a demonic influence. It doesn't mean that the cat or the dog is the devil. So, make a difference between these things. It can be that I want to quit smoking. And then everybody starts offering me cigarettes for free. That's a demonic thing. Of course, it's a bit dark because the tobacco represents some entities and it's going to kill me eventually. It's sucking my vitality slowly, slowly. And thus, it's definitely not the angels which determine people to give me cigarettes for free just to tempt me so that I should break my tapas, so that I should break my letting go. But again, is this the devil? Like, is this something which is meant to destroy your soul, to cause your perdition, or what? Just be open-minded in understanding that there are degrees And some of these degrees are just disturbing. Like a dog is barking and is frightening you. And you feel like, oh, like a hollow in your stomach. Because the dog was hiding behind the fence or a corner. And suddenly it goes, whoa. And you're like, no. And then that dog is stealing energy from you. Is that the devil? No. But it's not a nice thing either. And therefore... There are degrees. The demonic is mixed. The demonic is a typology which sometimes gives you good things. As I said last time, the one who brought the fire to the earth, to the earthlings, according to the Greek mythology, is the fellow called Prometheus. And in case you didn't know, Prometheus was a titan, which means in Indian language an asura, which means basically a demonic entity. So demonic entities can give you the gift of fire. They can do lots of like They are 50% good and bad. In terms of, hemo- uh, of human entities, you can think about that Joseph Stalin, who was producing the death of millions, was a loving grandfather. He loved his grandchildren. Pablo Escobar, who was producing cocaine for the whole North America... He loved people. He had wives, lovers, children. There were people whom he worshipped and whom he spoiled day in and day out. So for some people Escobar was an angel and for some people Escobar was a demon. That's, That's typical for the demonic. 
The demonic is 50-50. It's around zero. It's exactly like the temperature. Today we had 5 degrees above freezing point, and tomorrow we had 5 degrees below freezing point. It's in the twilight zone. This twilight zone is not accepted by the fanatic spiritualists like in the case of Jesus and the Christianity which followed in his footsteps, it's not. It's not acceptable. Even this half thing is not acceptable because it will distract you from meditation. It will, you know, like great monks who lived in the wilderness, they would not live with a cat. Because the cat is meowing, asking for food, you just want to pray non-stop to God then the cat is like a slightly demonic influence. It's an animalistic factor which reminds you too much of the flesh. It reminds you too much of the material world. Oh yeah, actually, if, if this cat wouldn't be here, I would pray and meditate so much, maybe I wouldn't remember for two days that I myself have to eat something. No, I would be so much in spirit that... So it's... I hope you understand that it's a matter of the degree of fanaticism, like what it is, but uh, generally in a place like the one with Jesus, any sort of these dubious influences would be labeled as demonic. In metaphysics, there is a difference between demonic and diabolic, or demonic and satanic. Diabolic or satanic is something which is directly against you, trying to destroy your soul, trying to make you choose the road to perdition. Demonic or, I'm sorry, satanic or uh, diabolic is an entity that hates you for a variety of reasons. You can meditate, try to find out why somebody would hate you. Why that? And demonic doesn't hate you, but it's just having a very strong personality and ego of its own, and it's running its own agenda. In this way, many people are demonic. Next time when you have, even in Thailand, they have this representation with, from Ramayana with the gods and the demons, the asuras, as called in Sanskrit, as they are churning the primordial ocean. And they use a huge snake, and they have a rope, and they, they just churn the ocean exactly as you churn the curd for producing, uh, you know, yogurt and other things, you know, creaming the milk and all that stuff. And whenever you see such a drawing, of course you find a million of them on the internet as well, whenever you find such a drawing of the churning of the ocean or a sculpture, look at the faces of the demons. Because the Indian artists, they have a sort of a iconographic tradition about how do demonic people look. And they generally look frightening. Have you seen in your family, in your environment, in your city, have you seen people looking frightening? And I'm not talking about people that are suffering from a handicap or something. I'm talking about people who one way or another, they are too much. Their eyes are bulging too much. They have a frightening mustache like this guy from Pinocchio, you know, or something. They, they have one of these extreme things. And when you look at them, you feel like, I would like to walk on the other side of the street. You know, I don't want to walk on the same lane with this guy, you know, and, or with this woman. 
as well. A woman who looks like Dumavati or something. A woman who looks like an old hag that is about to perform witchcraft on you any minute now. Now, this kind of thing, uh, you know, it, it's presented even iconographically in India that when people have a demonic character, you can see it on their faces. Because the thoughts which you had for 30 years, they determine the features of your face. If you are angry all the time, you are going to have a rictus of anger. Everybody can see this guy or this woman has been a nagging asshole for the last 40 years. It appears on your face. Somebody who has been laughing for the last 40 years, they look in a different way. Even the wrinkles on the face start arranging themselves according to the emotion expressed by your face. And thus... Of course, the Indian iconography was right that when people have demonic thoughts and demonic emotions and so on, you can see it on their faces and you can uh, immediately identify it. Of course, people refuse to pronounce that nowadays. It's politically incorrect because ah, you shouldn't judge somebody by the way they look. I beg to differ on that one with all of you if you think that. I sometimes do actually judge some people by the way they look. So that's the way it is. And I can bet to you that Jesus would have judged somebody by the way they looked because what is inside shines outside and then you get to see some things as much as people defend themselves. So I started this because I was at the episode in which Jesus performed his first exorcism. Probably the act of exorcism together with the act of healing, and sometimes it's the same, because if the person suffers from a demonic influence which affects their health, then what's the difference between healing and exorcism? The healing is an exorcism, and the exorcism is a healing. So this exorcism and healing, they are the biggest activity of Jesus. Like what he did, he preached, he said, he prayed, he walked on water, he did this, he did that. He did a lot of things. But often, almost every page, he healed somebody, he took out some evil spirits, he again healed somebody. And that's the majority of his activity. I would guess, I never tried to make a statistic, I would guess about 75% of what he did all day long, wherever he went, people knew him first of all for this. That's the guy who drives out the demons, and that's the guy who heals. And then, of course, rarely people have seen things way more outrageous than that, way more shocking than that. No, and that was the fact that, of course, Jesus was much further than that. Ultimately, we know from what happened further that Jesus did all these things with a purpose. It was goodwill, creation of goodwill. Although he created all this goodwill, funnily enough, in the, in the end, most people betrayed him. Because if you'd expect that Jesus went for three years in a small country, which was the Israel of those days, the provinces of Palestine and whatever, Judea, Samaria, whatever, Galilee, and all those parts of that, even today we know that that part of Israel is relatively small. And even by walking, you can walk from one end to the other in three, four days. And then if you walk for three years, you are bound to just go and round and round and round and round through all that. So people knew Jesus pretty well after three years. 
But funny, when G- it's true that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, where he had not been until that time, but when he was crucified in Jerusalem, people did not stand up for him. Normally, if you would have Jesus, and Jesus would be with you six months, and then some jerks come and say, this guy has to die. Everybody would stand up and form a wall against him and say, no, 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 not Jesus. Over our dead bodies are you going to touch Jesus, you know? But funny, funny. When it came to defending Jesus, nobody really, a few people, but almost nobody defended him. And when the Roman procurator, I anticipate some of you know the story or have seen movies, when the Roman procurator said, well, I've got a political criminal and I've got Jesus, I'll give you one of them so that you, you know, you choose. And when he gave the choice to the population, apparently 51% of the people in that plaza screamed Barabbas, not Jesus. Barabbas, who was a nobody, he was a guerrilla fighter, he was a partisan. People loved that partisan more than Jesus. Jesus was dubious for them. And thus, I'm telling you all these things to understand that Jesus was famous for these things and he used it as a creator of goodwill and in the end even this was not enough. But Jesus without this kind of miracles that everybody knew, this guy can heal, this guy can drive out demons... People would have said, yeah, yeah, you keep talking and asking us to open our heart chakra and asking us to forgive our enemies and fuck you, it's completely crazy. We are Jewish, we want a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye and stop this ridiculous thing. Like, imagine what Jesus would have been without this avalanche of miraculous or semi-miraculous things which he performed. It was still a goodwill. Try to think, we have the same thing in a certain way in yoga. Because at least 25% of yoga does heal. And it sometimes does heal things which are incurable by modern standards. No, we had a, 15 years ago when we moved here, I came from India with one disciple who was British. And then he started doing yoga because... He came in the end of my stay in India and then he came here quickly to continue here. And this guy had a health problem which is completely incurable by modern standards. He had what is called a calcified pancreas. Like his pancreas had become hardened, like a bone. It was calcified. He had calcium deposits on his pancreas. And of course the pancreas was not working properly anymore and he was heading, he was head forward going towards diabetes, and all the complications which result from this. He did Nauli Kriya and Udiana Banda for six weeks, then he went to Bangkok. His pancreas was as when he was a kid. The calcification of the pancreas never disappears in official medicine. But it disappeared in six weeks in Kopangan just by doing diet and Hatha Yoga. No? What's this? Many people come to yoga because of this. They say, oh, Swami Vivekananda is a weirdo. Oh, we heard some crazy sexual issues in Agama. But you know what? They can heal calcified pancreases. And I heard somebody had a cancer and they got away with it. You know, it's like, okay, they are good for something. Exactly as the healing part of yoga is a goodwill ambassador for yoga, even if you don't like other things and say, I don't believe, I don't know. 
healing in six weeks, you don't have to believe it. It's just verifiable by medical papers, you know. So it's kind of in your face. So exactly as healing in yoga is a goodwill, and if yoga would not be healing, then many people will say, should I go to yoga? Should I not go to yoga? Why should I go? No, I like more this or that. Like I know people who follow the spirituality of Theravada Buddhism. Like the Buddhism from the south, the Buddhism of Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and other areas here in Southeast Asia. And I know Farang, who has been a monk in this thing for 20 years, he has been three times close to his death. He has some autoimmune problems in his system. He was taken to the hospital on the brink of death three times. His abbot in the monastery where he was couldn't do anything about his healing. Because in the Buddhist monasteries, they don't do hatha yoga. They don't do macrobiotic diet. They don't do like this science. They are simply not interested in it. And if you've got a dengue or something, go to the hospital. That's all we can do with you. Send you to the doctors. The same about a Christian monastery. If you live in a Christian monastery and suddenly you get diabetes or something, the abbot of the monastery will not say, let's pray to Jesus, there is a special healing prayer. Or they will try perhaps. But it's not famous that this thing is happening all the time. Six weeks of Udhyana Banda and Nauli will do the job. So yoga, for example, has this cutting edge that either you like it or you don't like it, either you admire or you don't admire some things, either you believe or you don't believe some things, there is a goodwill ambassador. And the goodwill ambassador is that yoga heals, and it heals amazingly and sometimes unexpectedly and uh, a lot. In the, same, the same is in the case of Jesus. Remember that there are healers that don't have anything spiritual. In the last years of communism in Russia, I'm talking about the 1980s and even late 70s, the Russians had a healer. I don't know if she died or she's still alive and very, very old somewhere there. I think she was Armenian or Georgian, called Juna. Juna Jugashvili or something, or some funny name like this. And Juna was having an enormous healing power in her hands and in her body. And she was immediately hijacked in Moscow to heal Brezhnev, to heal all the dinosaurs of the Communist Party, all the elders, who are all of them 75, 80 years old and ailing with a lot, and they got Juna to help them. In a certain way, morally, you ask yourself, should she have done it? Like, what if you are asked to go and heal Hitler? Should you let the bastard die, because then the whole world will dance with joy? Or should you heal him and say, well, you know, it's his, up to him, you know, and so on. That's always, that was one of the great moral questions for doctors, if you should heal monstrous people and let them do their monstrosities further on. We are not going into this, but Juna, the healer, she was smoking, she was a night owl, like she was having a very unhealthy lifestyle, she was drinking booze Russian style, big time, she was living like a demented idiot. She was living like the Bohemians from the New York village or something. You know, She was living like uh, the actors from Hollywood. A life of dementia. And she was having a healing power which was absolutely astonishing. Verified by the communist government who was not believing bullshit. The communist government, they were not new age people. They were people who said, you heal us. 
and if you don't succeed, you go to prison as a crook for 20 years, you know? That was kind of the way they dealt with these things, you know? And Juna could heal them, visibly, measurably. No? That's why if you are a healer, does this demonstrate that God is with you? Far, far from that. So then why does it mean that if Jesus healed some lepers and so on, he was with God? By elementary logics, it does not. A healer can even be a demonic person. I have known healers who are ripping people off, who are exploiting people, whatever, all sorts of things from material benefits to sexual benefits to others, these people would get. And they were definitely not on the holy part. And Jesus comes and he heals. And many people say, so what? Maybe he is like Juna or something. You know, this is just a masculine Juna. And why does it mean that he speaks for God? It doesn't. But people have this transference. There is a psychological process called transference. Like the friend of my friend is my friend in a certain way, you know. If Jesus is doing all this and then he says, your sins are forgiven. Come to the kingdom of heaven. I have good news for you. You go like, whoa, this man I really trust. It's illogical. You don't have to trust such a person. But Jesus knew that people don't think logically. And therefore he addressed their heart. He addressed their emotions. That's why Jesus did lots of tiny miracles. Which were bourgeois miracles, you know. Helping people in their daily life. Great mystics are not about that. Even Jesus says, as you will see, I anticipate one of his formidable and shocking sayings, where he says, don't be afraid, for I have vanquished the world. Like, I had a war with the world, the world which Buddha calls samsara, and the world which Adi Shankaracharya calls maya. Jesus says, I fucked samsara. I squashed maya. I am the leader of the universe. I am Jesus. No? To me, Maya and Samsara has no more power over me in any way. And therefore, don't be afraid. You are with me. No? So Jesus is not really supporting the things of the world. Jesus, it seems today when you listen to religious people, that all these religions are just a hotbed of bourgeoisie. Yeah, have children, love each other, be lukewarm to each other. But actually when you go to the mystics of Christianity, they all of them run away from the world. And a great ascetic like Saint Athanasius, uh, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm telling, uh, I think I'm talking about Anthony the Egyptian, the Anthony the Great, who is the first man who went into the desert to live only with God and Jesus. The first, he is the beginning of the, these people who went into the wilderness in terms of Christianity. And Anthony the Great was such a wild man that he actually went south of Cairo. He went into the Egyptian desert, 20 kilometers or somewhere nobody would visit. And there the first thing which he did is he dug his own grave. He took a shovel or a, and he dug his own grave. He dug a two-by-one hole in the ground where he should lie down when he dies. 
And he said, since I know that death is the only thing which I can be for sure in this life, I'm prepared, I'm waiting for it. I'm here in the desert waiting for it to happen. No? And for the rest, if it comes in 20 years, I'll have time to pray for 20 years. But I'm prepared, I even dug my grave. No? And this Anthony the Great, he has a frightening word, which is the word of people like Milarepa, and some we know about Tibetan gurus, Indian sadhus, Christian ascetics, who went into the desert or in the Himalayas or in caves, they never came back. We don't know their names. Like they simply turned back to humanity and they just went to be with God exclusively, considering this humanity of Kali Yuga just a sort of a bag full of garbage. And Anthony the Great, who had this spirit, he says, he has a quote, because again, some people met him towards the end of his life and they asked him for words of wisdom. And he says, I know that the world is against me and like I, my way of life, that people talk bad and they say, that guy is, you know, he should. He said, I know that the world is against me, but please transmit them my word. I am also against them all. No, it's like, this is, it's a spirit which is like, you know, don't ask me to be bourgeois and to cuddle you under the chin and so on. It's like, no, it's not like this. People say, but what about the Buddhist compassion? Well, in Buddhism, maybe. But in this Christian ascetic environment, they sometimes didn't even have this. They said, why should I be obliged to have compassion towards people crawling in the mud? People crawling in the mud, they have chosen to crawl through the mud because if they would want, they would be with me here in a desert. They would dig a grave 100 meters further and they would also do exactly what I do. So if they don't do what I do, it means they like to live in shit. And therefore, why should I have compassion towards that? It's their choice, ultimately. So there is, I mean, Jesus left to the world this uncompromising, almost violent, rough, spirit of asceticism, you know, in which you don't uh, go for weaknesses and so on. And still, in this environment, Jesus is going around and solving people, people's problems. For example, in the old days, epilepsy was considered demonic possession, because people who are having an epileptic seizure, they do and they look like possessed by demons. They foam at the mouth, they contract, they get blue in their face, and so on. And epilepsy, until 50 years ago or 100 years ago, my teacher in chiropractice was healing epilepsy by exorcism. So he still considered it. I have learned chiropractic from a monk who was a doctor and who considered epilepsy demonic possession. In late in the 20th century. No? So it's like... Uh, People can corrupt this data and say, no, no, it's the key spikes of the electroencephalogram. Yeah, I know the medical explanation of epilepsy. I've studied electronics in medicine, and so I know everything about what epilepsy is, technologically speaking, but that doesn't mean that it explains what it is at the other end of the stick, what it is behind the scenes. And thus, what I'm trying to tell you here is Jesus was healing, let's say, somebody had an epileptic child, and Jesus would come and heal it. Which is, of course, very beautiful, and everybody gets heartwarmed, you know. He says, oh, this Jesus is a great man, you know. You cannot say that Jesus is bad. Look what he did. He, he healed the child of Walter, you know, and so on. It's like, 
He's, he must be a great guy. He must be a good guy. It's goodwill. It's a lot of goodwill. Coming together with it. Realize this. That Jesus was, obviously you don't need to say it, but we need to say it. Jesus was smart. Like sometimes we think that spiritual people should be a bit stupid. Like not really. Like if a, if a spiritual person is politically smart, then he can't be that spiritual. Why not? Why not? Why doesn't a, a spiritual person have the right to be intelligent, have strategies, do things according to a plan, and do things better and better in this way? So, of course, Jesus, knowing about his mission, he knew, obviously, that winning the sympathy of many people was going to promote his mission and one was going to bring a lot of goodwill. The result was that when Jesus was crucified and then the apostles started preaching his teachings, a lot of people from Israel, they baptized themselves and they became Christian. So actually the message did catch to a large percentage of the population and then of course the apostles went to Greece and Today's Turkey and the Roman Empire, Rome itself, and many, 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 many people, more and more and more and more, started becoming Christians. But even in Israel, where the Jewish priests were against Jesus, and still 20% of the people, 30%, 50% of the people, in the next 100 years, they became Christian. And that was because everybody knew of the reputation of Jesus. Jesus was not just a man who was talking and preaching some strange doctrines on Anahata Chakra, which were incomprehensible by the Manipuristic people living around in that time. That part of Jesus is hard to fathom. And then he healed some epileptics and he healed some cancer people or whatever and he took away some demons. And that, that people could see. And although that does not demonstrate that Jesus was divine, Jesus nevertheless was tricky, and he knew that people will believe him more right if he did such things. Exactly as I can be a great yoga therapist, I can advise you something to heal your pancreas or to heal your cancer, that doesn't make me an enlightened being. Ramana Maharishi, who was an enlightened being, he couldn't heal, heal zilch. Even he died of cancer. He himself died of cancer. No? So there is an enlightened being who has zero healing power because he doesn't know Hatha Yoga and all these things. He knows other things about yoga. And then there will be people who would know Hatha Yoga like the famous BKS Ayengar, the author of the notorious Ayengar Yoga, he healed the great Jewish violinist Yehudi Menuhin of his disease with the shoulder. He had a problem with the shoulder. And this guy made him do headstand every day and a few other things, and his shoulder was healed. And Yehudi Menuhin wrote the foreword to the famous book of uh, BKS Ayengar called Light on Yoga. Because he said, you know, this man saved my violin. This man saved my career as a violinist. And Yehudi Menuhin was one of the top three violinists of his age. And people knew him. And he said, wow, if he wrote the foreword, then this must be really good. The yoga of Iyengar 
could do a lot of healing, but this doesn't make Ayengar an enlightened yogi or a master of yoga. So this is exactly where people mix the different parts of it, and there is the transference. You do a transference. If he can heal the shoulder of Yehudi Menuhin, then it means he must be a sage from Shambhala. Those two are non sequitur, as we say in Latin. It's, it doesn't mean that one derives from the other. It's not a logical conclusion, that one. So, Jesus did a lot of these things, but understand that Jesus here was using a psychological trick because he knew that these things will work on people. And of course, it's all done for a great purpose. It's all done for a good purpose. But still, it is going in this direction. Of course, there are explanations which are more archetypal. Like the human being is archetypally created in the likeness of God. So theoretically, when you are ill, you are out of resonance with the blueprint from God. Because you cannot be ill from God. It's not possible. And thus... Again, we have examples of the wrath of God, but that's a different story. And therefore, every person who is sick is out of attunement with something which is archetypal and fundamental. And therefore, you can say that Jesus was going around and being a perfect being, he simply could not tolerate to see sick people around because every sick person was like a person whose soul was fallen out of sync with the great source, and that's why he benevolently and compassionately went around healing people, uh, casting away demons, so that people could live in harmony. As we know, even this did not work. You know, like sometimes these healings and exorcisms, they backfire on the healer and the exorcist in various conditions. We'll talk more about this when we come to some of those, because there are some examples of those. And therefore, uh, he came in this uh, town of Capernaum, and there the, he went to the synagogue. And when this boy was, saw him, there was a young boy who had a demonic possession, and he started crying at the top of his voice as the Bible. Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is very interesting. The people in the synagogue didn't know who Jesus is. There was just another prophet, an interesting guy, especially he was in the beginning of his career. He was another weirdo coming and preaching. You, some of you might have seen, if not something about the life of Jesus, at least that parodic. And you don't know if you want to cry or laugh when you see that movie of Monty Python, which is called The Life of Brian. Yeah? In the life of Brian, is like it's the same. You know, there are prophets over prophets preaching all sorts of absurdities. And everybody knows that in many of these societies, there appear many people who are a bit off-center in their mind, and they come around preaching a million things. If you sit on the flower of life, you are going to get enlightened. Tough luck, it doesn't seem it happens. But people still sit on the flower of life or do things because they hope. You know, somebody said that. It was not Jesus who said that. So was the person right? Was the person just getting rich by selling snake oil? You know, it's like you don't know. And that's, that's what's happening. And that's what's happened always in history. 
in Jerusalem as well as in Rome and as well as wherever you wanted, there are all sorts of crazy things. I remember I read an article in a magazine in 1995, 1995, it's long time since then, which said that in Los Angeles alone, the department from the social office, the American social office, police, whatever it was, it was registering every week. I even forgot, somewhere around 10 new religions. Like Jesus created a religion 2,000 years ago, and in one week in Los Angeles in 95, there appeared 10 new. Now, everybody knows, most probably 99.9% of those were created by crooks or mentally disabled people who thought they were the new Messiah or something like this. And therefore... Uh, they existed many, and therefore Jesus, especially in the beginning when he didn't have a who was this Jesus. But the young man was speaking the truth, like a man who is drunk and bubbles the truth in his drunkenness. The possessed people, sometimes something or somebody is speaking through them, and they tell the truth. They tell things of great profoundness. And he is telling... What do you want? Like he felt immediately threatened in the moment when Jesus entered the synagogue, this guy started screaming. In the Orthodox Christian Church, there is an expression which says, you are running like the devil runs from incense. And they mean frankincense. Because the devil likes stench. God likes frankincense. So if you fumigate with frankincense, you eliminate a lot of demonic entities because for them frankincense is like torture. For all the spiritual people, it's a spiritual perfume. But the demons can't tolerate it precisely because of the resonance which it produces. That's why the presence of a spiritual person can give to a person that is possessed by demonic influences pain, agony, fear. The person screams and goes, precisely because of it. I can tell you a story with one of my old yoga teachers. I had the fortune to study with people who were from the old generation, and they were the old-fashioned, like they had the original yoga, the authentic yoga, not some of these new age, politically correct things. And I'm going with him to visit a female yoga teacher in another country who was doing gymnastics. She said she was a yoga teacher, but she was not doing yoga like union with God or samadhi. Or She was doing pure gymnastics. Incidentally, she was from the Iyengar style. She was a teacher of the Iyengar style. After, she says, come and see a yoga class with me. Sure. Then we want to talk. You know, it's like, I, I was together with my teacher and another yoga person, and we visited this yoga teacher because we wanted to see how they do their yoga. It was short time after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and we coming from Eastern Europe, we wanted to see how great is yoga in the West, where people were completely free to do yoga as much as they want. In Romania, they put us in prison if we were teaching yoga. So it's like, now we wanted to see how yoga is in the free world. And the disappointment was that in the free world, people were doing less yoga and more shitty than the people 
under the Iron Curtain who are doing it under threat and under pressure and being threatened for their life and freedom and all that. So we visit this teacher. We visited many, many others. We visit this girl. <clears throat> and uh, she says, come to my home. Let's have lunch or something. Let's have a cup of tea and you can visit me in my home. We can speak more quiet. Sure. Let's go to the home of a yoga teacher and so on. We go to the home of this girl. She takes us around in town to pick up her daughter from the kindergarten and so on. Like a whole headache and so on. Okay, we still are very good willing to see what's happening. We go to the house of this yoga teacher. She has a dog in the house. A nice black dog like a Labrador dog or something like this. And the dog starts barking in agony. And he hides under the stairs. She had some stairs in the apartment. And the dog is hiding under the stairs and barking and feeling threatened. And she says, I don't know what's happening with Johnny or Walter or Rex or whatever the name of the dog is. Because it never behaves like this. It's always very friendly with visitors. And it's never like this. And then my yoga teacher, we have an expression in Romania... When you do a big social blunder, you know, he, he was very ready to do blunders. You know, we have an expression in Romania which says, you blow your nose in the soup. Like you are eating with somebody and suddenly, and there is snot in the soup. You know, it's like, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, you can't do that, you know. So my teacher in that day, he blows the nose in the soup. He says, you know that in the ancient medieval magic, the European Middle Age magic, it was considered that black animals have a resonance with hell. And they are in the black animals, they incarnate souls which are more demonic in nature. And he says, because I am present in this room and because of my aura, this dog is in agony, it's simply afraid of me. That's why it's behaving like this. Like this young man, when Jesus appeared, he started screaming. He felt threatened automatically because Jesus is the natural enemy of the darkness. This is what I say. Here we are talking about a vision of the universe. No, like many, maybe some of you have black animals at home. You surely would feel offended by my then yoga teacher, you know, who simply declares that this animal which you hold so dear, it's a black animal and it has a soul which comes from hell. Nice, have a nice day, no? Live, live, have fun, no? And so on, no? Like the black, the witches who are surrounding themselves with black cats and all that stuff. So, this being the story, we are back to Jesus, who knows, I mean, he plays the game, and the young man, he speaks the truth. He says, Why do you come? You are Jesus. How does he know he's Jesus of Nazareth? Where did he hear it from? And he says, did you come to destroy us? Of course, he doesn't realize that it's not the policy of God to destroy the evil. Even Jesus himself, later in his career, he says, it is God does not wish the death of the sinner, but the redemption of the sinner. Like the sinner should be kept alive so that he or she has the chance to take a good decision and to mend their ways. Why? Because if you do the metaphysical workshop, you know one thing for sure. That life 
is meant for evolution. We are here to evolve. And if you die, your evolution stops. And you have to wait 300 years and get incarnated again and then continue. People say, but don't you evolve in the astral world? No, almost not at all. In the astral world, you sit and suck your thumb. You are in a coma. Most people are. So evolution, you are not doing anything new in between lives. In between lives, you don't have a brain and a spine and a conscious mind. You are running automatically on the subconscious mind. And in between lives, exception made if you are Milarepa and you took your consciousness with you beyond death, normal people, 99.99% of the people that die, when they die, they are inactive. They become passive, like you are in your dreams. Ah, if you do yoga nidra, and you can control your dreams and do things in your dreams, then you have my respect. Then you can do things in the astral world. That's one person in a million. And therefore, uh, the evolution happens here on earth. If you would study the evolution which people get in life, whatever happens, that they kill somebody, that they are hit by the plague and they die in an epidemic, whatever is happening, ups and downs, good and bad, people are like evolving, 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 take a break while you are in between lives, evolving, 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 take a break while you are, like the evolution which you have in 300 years between two lives is not even 1% of the evolution which you have in one life, Either you do good things or bad things. Even when you do mistakes, you still evolve. Because those mistakes will send you to hell. You will learn a bitter lesson. And then at least you will evolve. You will evolve through pain. But you will still evolve. And thus, Jesus is very clear. That's what Jesus illustrates. Because he says, God, he knows the will of God. He understands Dharma. He understands the order of the universe. And he says, God does not want the death of the sinner. Because if the sinner dies, then the chance of evolution is gone. So he says, death wants the redemption. Like, try, 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 till the last moment. Until the last hope is there. And that's why, of course, this child, the demon in this young man, is an animal. The demon says, did you come to destroy us? Because that's what he would do. If he would have the power, he would destroy Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to destroy. Because even the demons evolve. They have a soul and therefore they evolve. They are at a very low and dark level of evolution, but they still evolve. So Jesus doesn't kill the demons. He just puts them in their place, says, back to your place. Back where you belong. Stop persecuting this human being. No, it's Jesus is creating order, but for the demon is like, did you come to destroy me? And actually he says, did you come to destroy us? Which is very meaningful, because it means there are several of them talking through one voice. It's many or very often when demonic entities have been interviewed, who are you, tell your name, they said, we are legion. Like we are many. It's like 30 demons possessing a person. It's that case which was, there's a movie recently with some schizophrenic guy who had 10 or 20 personalities. I forgot the name. You know? And that, in that movie, you know, it's like he is 10 different persons. 
completely different from each other. And that's legion. That's what Gurdjieff called the small egos. That the human being is not unitary. And thus, uh, you can see from the fear of the demon exactly what the problem is. No, Jesus didn't come to destroy them. Because the demon will not be killed. The demon will just be sent home. Go away. Go away. Shoo. Get out of here. What are you doing to this young man? Of course, it's very bad for the demon because he is piggybacking on that young man. He is sucking his life and sucking his vitality. And that young man will live for 50 years and nothing will come out of his life. It's a, it's a wasted life because the demon is taking the decisions and the young man is just possessed all the time and incapable. And in the end, the demon is going away and pursuing its thing and uh, a uh, person who was possessed is like, uh, now I can die. No, what did I get out of this life? Nothing. I just had a terrible karma while I was possessed by a demonic entity. And this is probably because I kept somebody prisoner for 50 years in a dungeon cell in my previous life or other such things. So I deserved my karma. But it doesn't make things easier for me just because I know why I have it. The problem is that, so the demonic entity is making the young man clairvoyant. In the whole synagogue, this young man says, Jesus, who, whoa, what did you come here? Do you want to destroy us? And I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. People didn't know that Jesus was the Holy One of God. But the demon knew. That's the interesting thing. Because the demons see. They are clairvoyant. They are spirits. And they see what human beings don't see. They see the whole picture. They know very well what they are doing and to where it leads and all that. And thus, the demon actually gives witness in the favor of Jesus. And Jesus goes and says, be quiet. Of course, that's one of the attitudes which if you live with exorcists and these people, that's exactly what it is. Beyond a certain limit, the demon is told, shoo, go, no, shut up. Oh, but I would like to shut up. You know, it's like it, you speaking is just complete useless. There is no dialogue. Like Jesus would never argue with a demon. Ah, uh, yeah, maybe or maybe. It's like there's no compromise. It's like out. Shut up. Out. There's no deals made with the demons or anything like this. And that's famous in exorcism, you know, because if you start, you have Hollywood movies with exorcism. If you start talking to the demons, you know, they are much trickier than you are. You get nowhere, you know. Jesus doesn't even have a, you know, he says, be quiet, like shut up, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. He threw him down like the young man fell down. There is an artifact in the Mount Athos, which is a place where, unfortunately, for the time being, women have no access. It's an all-male area, 20 monasteries of men in Greece, somewhere in the northeast of Greece. And in Mount Athos, they have the relics of a great Christian saint who was called Athanasius. Athanasius the Great was having an incredible spiritual power, which allowed him that he could materialize demons... Like they would appear out of the blue, like this. And then he had a metallic rod, a stick. And he was beating the shit out of them. He was beating them like schnitzel. 
you know? And that stick survived. That stick is placed on his tomb, and it has the magic property that if anybody who suffers from epilepsy touches it, they make one last epileptic seizure right there on the spot, and then the epilepsy is gone for the rest of their lives. So the, the cure is a seizure. The cure is a crisis. Even when Jesus told to this guy, get out, it happened with one more crisis. Like the demon threw him down. Maybe it was epilepsy or something similar. So the young man fell down and had some convulsions or whatever. And then 30 seconds later, he opened his eyes and he says, what happened? Where am I? Oh my God. You know, like then he woke up. And this nightmare, which had lasted for years and years, simply stopped. So it's typical also when you describe this, because very many of these healings and so on, they happen through a crisis. People hardly understand these things. Exorcism is a very, very slippery doctrine. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power he gives order even to the evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. There can be people who are shamanic or skilled in sorcery or in witchcraft, and they might be able to cast out a demon. Like, you know, the, like in the Lord of the Rings, you know, one of those wizards might be able to perform an exorcism. It doesn't make them enlightened. Like, even the fact that Jesus could cast out an evil spirit doesn't mean that he was with God. It means that he was really powerful on the astral body and on the mental body where most of these possessions occur. But for the people it didn't matter. The people immediately did the transference. They said, wow, if he did that, like how can somebody have such power over, even over evil spirits that they listen to him? And he just said, go, and it went. This way of operating of Jesus, by the way, is a way which is called in metaphysics the power of the word. And you heard about it in yoga because in the lecture on satya, because it's called Vaksidi, the city of Vak. And this power of the word means that you don't have to do anything but just say it. That is why the people who are heading towards the power of the word, it's a city which comes from Vishuddha, and in the case of Jesus, it's pushed at a level where it goes to Ajna and Sahasrara as well. There are not too many cities belonging to Sahasrara. But the main starting point of this Vak city and of this power of the word is Vishuddha Chakra. And the people who have this kind of power, they have one characteristic which you will notice immediately. They, they might use dirty words here and there they might use offensive sense of humor. They might use smut or other things, but they will never pronounce with their mouth blasphemy. Like, if a person says, suck my dick, that can be taken humoristically. But if such a person says, go to hell, 
then you actually do go to hell. And sucking the dick is just an amusing little thing. You know, it can be taken as a silly, dirty joke. But going to hell is not a joke at all. And thus, this is one characteristic which I've seen with all my teachers who are into this spiritual field. None of them, even once, used blasphemy. None of them invoked the devil and or things like this. Like, you know, there are people, I've heard people who say, Oh, may the devil tame me. God damn, and so on. Never. Never such people do. I can do it now for you with the title of, without addressing it to somebody specifically, with the title of explaining it in a satsang. But I, following in the footsteps of my teachers, I never curse or damn, because it will happen if I do. It will happen. Then I just want to give you a simple example. There is an example of a guy who was a bit of a high-level mystic and a high-level priest. I think he was a bishop in a small city of Romania, which was the capital of the southern part of Romania called Valachia in those days. And this guy, for a reason or another, he got pissed off at the whole world. Like he got pissed off at the city. He thought that people are great sinners and so on. And then he did a very simple thing. He put on his priest clothes. He came out to the door of the church and he cursed the city. And he said, I curse this city never to grow more than it is now. Like to be cursed that it cannot grow and develop ever. That city stopped being the capital of that province and of Romania. And today it is smaller than how it was 400 years ago when it was cursed. Like that curse still works. Without anybody understanding why, that city lost the juice, lost its juice, and the people emigrate from that city. They don't stay. That city is under a curse. It's a benign curse. Like it didn't hurt. This guy was beneficial. He, he was just angry, but he didn't hurt anybody in particular. His curse is a sort of an abstract curse. So what if a city doesn't grow? There will be a hundred other cities who will grow. But it's just a demonstration of the divine anger and of the divine power. He just said the words and it happened. So you will never encounter a person like Milarepa who tells to somebody, may you go to hell. Because you do. They send you to hell in the moment when they say that. That's why, and you know, people say, oh, but I don't care because I don't believe in God. Then why do you curse with the devil? Or may the devil take you, may the devil take me. May the, like, why, why do you say such stupid things? Oh, but it doesn't matter. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the devil. It's just a manner of speech which we inherited from our uh, forefathers and so on. And then somebody says, if it doesn't matter, then why don't you say go to paradise? May you go to paradise. May you go to heaven. Then they realize immediately. When you say go to hell, it produces a pleasure. Something in you goes like, ah. No? That's something. That's something is exactly what we are talking about. Curse people by telling them, may you go to heaven. May you go to paradise. You bastard. May you go to paradise. You know? Why don't you curse them beneficially? 
the use of the demonic words and of this, Jesus demonstrates it because Jesus doesn't do. Wait a second. Abracadabra. Aum. Come out. He doesn't do anything. He says, shut up. Go out. And it happens like this. He has the power of the word. And what he says happens just like this. And that's why when you have that power or when you have 50% of that power or when you have 1% of that power, And almost everybody has that power because you are children of God and you have consciousness and you speak an articulated language. Then when you do that, when you say something, it happens. May this be an important teaching from this satsang. Stop saying evil things. Don't even dare to utter them because uttering them is like you do black magic. By saying, may the devil take you, you are invoking the devil. It's like you are doing a satanic ritual. Every time when you call it, the devil is very happy to come. Because you invite it. And some people say, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? May the devil take me. How could I? Why do you call the devil to take you? And of course, you are already half taken already. And now you want more. You know, it's like, how stupid do you have to be? But the thing is that people do not understand the power of the word. And they don't believe in it. And they think that they can say whatever rubbish and it will go away. That's the normal people, luckily, 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 normal people have a very, very weak power of speech. Because they lie a lot, because they are indecisive, because, you know, and then their speech is like, <laughs> may we get, uh, like, no, nah, nah, I'm just kidding, may we do this, may we, may we, you know, like, you don't even hope, stop, focus. A man like Jesus, if he says, go, then it's go. There's no turning back from that. That's the power of the word, and it's a fantastic thing, very high, causal on Vishuddha Chakra. And uh, once this power appears, goes into manifestation, people are very cautious about it. You will see that several times it happens that people say, no, 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 I believe you, just say the word. And Jesus says, your faith is extraordinary. Yes, let it be so. And it happens in that second. When he says it, it happens. Of course, Jesus is 100% with the power of the word. And what he says really happens. And other people have 30%, 1%, 0.1%. But remember that even the common person on the street shares a little bit in this power of the word. And because of this, all of you who want to do yoga and who want to develop and grow up spiritually, you should be very careful about how you use your word. Because your word is like a magic invocation. What you say is magically called by resonance. And thus, uh, in the case of Jesus, you can see the perfect exertion of that function. The exertion of that function to 100%. That's why you'll never hear Jesus doing any blasphemy ever. I have heard gurus making very crazy jokes. Bad taste jokes. Sometimes really 
did Swami Shivananda do that? Did the 16th Karmapa do that? Like, yeah, real silly jokes. And again, not very good taste jokes. I, you can hear them, you can hear some gurus, especially the tantric gurus, the ones which are more into the sex part, even doing sexual jokes and using, there is a famous discourse of Osho Rajneesh, where he is asked by a disciple, but they were making disciples ask the right questions. So the questions were arranged. It was not spontaneous, like we do in the Q&A live. They were written and filtered, and then somebody told uh, Satya, please for Tuesday, write this question, and I'll pretend I'm answering to it, because I actually want to speak about that subject. And somebody asks the question, we don't know if it's right or if it's arranged, he says, Osho, at that time he was not called Osho, he was called Bhagwan, he says, Bhagwan, I'm shocked that you use the word fuck so much in your discourses. And then Bhagwan keeps a, a five minute famous discourse about the word fuck, in which he says fuck about 200 times. And he describes the word fuck in all the grammatical and semantical meanings in English language and so on. And really, any one of you, it's on YouTube, go and see Rajneesh fuck and so on. You will, you will laugh your heads off because in the end he uses it so much that you see that it's really not important. And it's just people who are snobbish and they have this thing like, oh, why would you use that word and so on. It's, uh, it's formidable. You laugh and laugh like in the last two minutes, you laugh almost non-stop. You can't stop yourself from laughing. So crazy that discourse is. So uh, you may hear a person who pretends to be enlightened even saying fuck 200 times. But they will never call upon the devil to come. They will never curse. They will never do blasphemy. Blasphemy means offending God, like, you know, saying that God does not exist and God is stupid, idiot, thing like, no, never. Because the words are not just coming and going and flying like this. The words have a power. And we human beings are the only creatures on this planet which have the power of the word. And that is why, uh, be mindful of this, because the more you go into yoga, the more this power, the more you open your Vishuddha chakra, the more this power becomes activated in you. And you don't want to turn it against the world and against yourselves unwittingly. The word is a formidable power and it must be used consciously and carefully. Again, I've seen many people using the power of the word, little as they had, by destroying themselves. So, Jesus operates with the power of the word. There is, by the way of this, to make a little parenthesis, Jesus sometimes seems to have used other methods, like his knowledge, apparently he knew some natural healing. There is a gospel, which is called the gospel of truth, if I remember correctly. It's an apocryphal gospel. It's either the gospel of truth or the gospel of the twelve apostles. But I think it's the gospel of truth, the one I'm talking about. It's not in the Bible. It's a text which is unconfirmed. And in that text, it's, it, there is a lot of stories about Jesus healing people. And it says things like this. Like somebody was having a problem, like they had worms inside their body. And Jesus tells him, take a pumpkin, 
make it hollow, like empty it, put a hole into it and put a flexible reed through it, a plant, the plant called reed, which is like a hose, which is like a, and then lie down, put this reed up your ass, and then take all the evil out of you. Like Jesus recommends to somebody a primitive Palestinian 2,000 years ago, enema. How to make an enema? How to make a colonic? You just make a colonic by using a pumpkin and a reed up your ass. No? He uses an irrigator, an anal irrigator made of a... No? So it's like, of course, if Jesus recommended Shanka Prakshalana to some people, and those people were very sick, and in three weeks became healthy, then there was no need for any miracle. So it appears in some texts that Jesus was a great healer in the natural way as well. And many of these stories which you read about many people got healed, many of them were by diet, by colonics, by all sorts of methods like this, which the Bible doesn't mention. Because for those people was like, you have a calcified pancreas, prepare for diabetes. You will never recover from that. And then there come six weeks of Udiana and Nauli, and there you are. And then it's a miracle. It's a bloody miracle anyway, although we can explain it with Udiana and Nauli and the activation of Manipura Chakra and so on. But for somebody who was condemned by the medical science to go to death or towards death, it's still a bloody miracle. So even if Jesus did, it, the did half of his miracles or 90% of his healing in the naturist way, it's still a miracle. There are people who created healings against cancer. Suvorin with fasting. George Oshava with macrobiotic diet. And the list continues. There are at least 10 plus methods which worked in healing cancer in hundreds and hundreds of cases. Modern science says it's incurable. If I would be in the United States and I would tell you that cancer can be healed by yoga, I am liable to go to prison for one year and a half automatically. Just stating that cancer can be healed by something else than chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery. In America, it is a crime. And in Canada, George Oshava was condemned to one and a half year in prison. Mikio Kushi was condemned to one and a half year in prison for this, for cancer. Wilhelm Reich was condemned for one and a half year in prison. In Canada, Hulda Clark was condemned for, who, is, who wrote this book, The Cure for All Cancers. She was condemned to one and a half year in prison. And a guy called Ed McCabe, who was called Mr. Oxygen, and who demonstrated that oxygen therapy can heal cancer, he was also put in prison one and a half year. It's like uh, the North American governments, they have a standard. You speak against medical institution and that you can heal cancer, it's jail for one and a half year, automatically, you know. So, uh, that's why I say that it's anyway a miracle, the fact that somebody gives you a diet or something and you are condemned to death, or sometimes a fate worse than death. There are fates worse than death. I don't know if you realize that sometimes people say, I got healed, but I'm in hell. Then some people say, I would have preferred to die. Uh, one of our students, one of our teachers in Agama, 
she was working in an oncologic department in a hospital in Western Europe. And one of the women that she was one of the patients in the department, she had been in that bed for three weeks. She had had genital cancer. And first of all, they performed on her radiotherapy. They irradiated her uterus, her cervix, her ovaries to destroy the tumor. And of course, by doing that, they had burned all the tissues in her belly, including her genitals. And that woman was lying in bed in the oncological department. Uh, she was allegedly healed. And she told to this young girl who was a nurse, she was an apprentice nurse, she said, if this room, the windows would be openable, the windows were not openable for a good reason, she said, if I could open any of the windows here, this minute I would throw myself out of the window and kill myself. Because she said, I'm in hell. And I've been for the last three weeks in hell. So sometimes, you know, it's like sometimes death is preferable to some of the Frankensteinian modern methods of so-called healing diseases in which they chop you like a sausage and they poison you with chemicals and then they send you home. You are healed. Of course you are going to live in a wheelchair and you have only one kidney left and you are shitting in a plastic bag and you have pain every day but you are healed. You are healed. Great. It's a victory of medicine. You know, many people will say if you would have told me before I would have preferred an injection, a lethal injection. You know, it's much easier than to deal with this. And thus, uh, even if Jesus used some alternative healing methods for his contemporaries, that was still a miracle. Because it's like, I had no hope. I was in agony. I was in pain. And this guy gave me whatever, a read up my ass or something. And three weeks later, I'm dancing and full of joy. Whoa, that's a miracle. And thus, I'm uh, telling you all this because all these actions of Jesus, they have this goodwill with them. And then the next paragraph is called exactly that. Jesus heals many. And this, I think, at least five times if we go through the text, we're going to find another day, another month, where Jesus again healed a thousand people. Or like, whoa. No, it's like he was relentless in this. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. She suffered from a high fever. Oh, you have to give her some antibiotic, right? That's, no, they didn't exist in those days. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. Can you imagine the mind, the mindset that you go to somebody and say, speak to their fever and say, whoa, enough, go, out. And then suddenly the person has no fever. Incredible. Incredible. For, the, for Jesus, even the fever was a karmic, subtle thing which could be removed just like that. Of course, there are not many people like Jesus who lived in the history of the world. But Jesus is archetypal in so many ways. That's why we look at this. So, the healings of Jesus, how do you do? I mean, do you say he used a trick? Maybe. 
he used the trick. Sometimes the mind can do miracles. There was a, one of my pupils when I was teaching in Rishikesh, was an NLP practitioner, and he told me about two cases from Canada, which were known in the NLP world of Canada, where he simply said, explain this one if you want, because the NLP people know this one. They performed post-mortem on a dead professor from the University of Toronto. And they discovered that he had been suffering in childhood from hydrocephalia, and he had only one brain hemisphere. The other brain hemisphere was full of liquid. He didn't have brain, and he functioned as a university professor. So all the modern theories that this is in the left brain hemisphere, and this is in the right, and this is the center of speech, and this is the center of making pee-pee, and this, this is bullshit, because this man was living with one brain hemisphere, and he was, I mean, okay, maybe professors in the Toronto University are a bit crazy, but still he was functioning in the society. And here comes the second case, a famous story of a woman somewhere, you know, Canada and Australia have these huge, huge distances between places, and a woman has an accident in the middle of nowhere. And the first guy who comes there and calls the ambulance is a guy who happens to be an NLP hypnotist. And he knows that the woman being in shock, she is in a state of hypnosis, in a state of trance. So he starts hypnotizing her as she was there. She's blocked in the car. He can't take her out of the car. She's trapped in the car. And he just hypnotizes her and says, now your heartbeat is slowing down. You feel really good. There is a pleasant warmth in your body. Your bleeding stops completely. You feel warm and cozy and comfortable. And your heart is beating steady and regular. And you feel safe. And you know that those people will be here and give you the medical care in a minute. And don't, you don't worry at all. And you feel happy. And you feel calm. He just hypnotized her into a state of perfect being. The ambulance came in 30 minutes because it was far from every city or village. It was in the middle of nowhere. It took 30 minutes for the first ambulance to come. When they packed that woman and they put her in the ambulance, the doctor noticed that she had severed her carotid artery. It was cut by a metallic part of the car and she had the carotid artery severed. You cannot live more than 3 minutes or 4 minutes with a severe carotid artery. That woman had lived 30 minutes with it and she was saved because somebody put her in hypnosis and told her she's okay. So maybe the mother of Simon was the same. Maybe she was in a state and Jesus just did, you know, and he spoke to her 30 seconds because he said here that Jesus bent over her and rebuked the fever. In what words? How? We are not being told. At least to the young man, he spoke to the demon and he said, go away. Leave him alone. Out. No, then we know approximately if, it's, if the story is accurate, then we know what he's supposed to have said. We don't know what he said to this woman. Maybe he just did the hypnotic hocus pocus, but the point is that she stood up and she was healthy. So it's mind over matter again and again and again and again in the case of Jesus with Jesus. So she got up at once and began to wait on them. Like, also, devotion, a beautiful reaction, you know. It's like, you had a fever. I come to you and rebuke the fever. You are okay. You sit up. What's the first thing which you do? Oh my God, what a fever I had. 
You look up your own belly button and you are having self-pity. This woman was a karma yogini. I have an important guest in my house. He just came and healed my cancer, my fever, whatever it was. The first thing which I do is I bring food, I bring water, I wash their feet. I, you know, I, she was waiting on them, like a waitress, you know, waiting on them, doing waitress service. Like she served them. No? That was the beautiful reaction. This is a reaction from the heart of somebody who says, you know, not like, you know, oh, you've just saved me, thank you so much. And then I'm sitting on my ass and like, where is my love? Where is my action? about this. Where is my gratitude? See, this woman was the good type. No? And Jesus, whichever way he did it, he did it. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now we are told that he was laying hands. Many. Right? In especially where the medical system does not exist, you can imagine in a village from Palestine 2,000 years ago, that there are many people who have had all sorts of health problems, and they were poorly healed, and because of this, they had sequels of all kinds. So they brought to Jesus a whole plethora of people who are sick. It's almost frightening. There is a beautiful scene in the musical movie, now it depends what edition of it, because I've seen that they produced it, and then they reproduced it, and then they reproduced it. It's the famous musical, I forgot who made it as a musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar is tragic, because it, it contains a very disharmonious and demonic music on Manipura. Those people pretend to chant about Jesus, who is a superstar, and they do it in a very ugly way. If you just want to see this, one day watch the Franco Zeffirelli music uh, movie, Jesus of Nazareth, the legendary one, the beautiful one, which we play here in the school on Christmas and Easter. Sometimes we forget on Easter every year. And watch Jesus of Nazareth today, and then watch Jesus Christ Superstar tomorrow. If you have done yoga at least a month or two, you will feel Jesus Christ Superstar like an offense to your ears. You know, it's like, it's like somebody gives you a fist in the stomach. Like the people who made it, they had absolutely no clue about who Jesus was. They had absolutely zero feeling about who Jesus was. And they had this uh, Protestant and neo-Protestant image, which is strong in America, that if you sing about Jesus, you can sing any way you want, because Jesus will hear you and will be happy. That's very, very far from the truth, because a lot of things matter in this expression. So, not going too much into this, in this Jesus Christ Superstar, there is a wonderful scene, at least in one of the editions which I've seen. At some point, people keep bringing to Jesus paralyzed people, handicapped people, Parkinson people, autistic people, and it's hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, and they simply drown Jesus. Like Jesus is helpless, just one man trying to heal person after person, but the line of sick people is endless. It's more than a man can take. 
It's more than even what Jesus can take. And they drown him. Drown. He's like overwhelmed. It's like when people play American football or rugby. You know, when one is falling and everybody else piles on him. And suddenly you have 20 people piled on top of each other. You know, they are piling on Jesus. And eventually Jesus is like, and he crumbles, you know. Like, there's so much suffering and sickness in this world that even Jesus can't heal them. There should be a million Jesuses around to deal with all the suffering and all the agony which exists on this earth. So, of course, the mission of Jesus is not to be a healer. It's not to be a doctor. That's collateral for his mission. But this part, this image was caught very well in this Jesus Christ superstar. You know, like people think that Jesus is a healer. So let's bring him grandma. Let's bring him Aunt Mary. Let's bring him Uncle Walter. You know, like because like Jesus is supposed to just sit there and give medical consultations nonstop. But Jesus did not come for this. This is a completely secondary thing in his mission and in his action. And that's why it's the same thing, that people don't see the spiritual part, but people all the time focus on the material benefits. What can Jesus do for me today? It's not like this. In the heart, in the soul, it's a completely different story. And as such, the people then, they said, Oh, Jesus is there, he healed this, he healed this. Let's bring him. Oh, is there somebody else in the village who needs some healing? Jesus is here. We want to... Of course, people try to realize. People are skeptical. They want to see it with their own eyes. Because they want the faith. The belief. And even after Jesus heals five people, they say, I can't believe it. There must be a trick. Bring another one. It's, it's what Jesus is doing is not only healing for those people. He's healing the skepticism and the cynicism and the lack of faith of everybody else. This is more like the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus is to give people faith. To give people a proper belief. And he does that through his own body, through his own life, by simply showing and showing and showing. And you know, later, he even walks on water. And Peter says, if you can walk on water, it means you can make me walk on water. And Jesus says, sure, come on, you know. And then Peter walks two, three steps on water, like Jesus. And then he falls in the water. He sinks. And Jesus tells him, you know, as long as I kept you, you did. And then when I let you on your own faith, you doubted. Your mind, you were walking on water. And your stupid monkey mind said, am I really walking on water? Then you drown. You should not ask that stupid question. Jesus wants the people to have confidence. Full confidence. And his life is an example. Like, see. And see it again. And see it again. And how many times do you need to see? He asks. He said, oh ye of little faith. You have seen so many things and still you can't believe. It's incredible, you know. Even when he's in front, like... You would ask me, Swamiji, can you levitate him? I'm not levitating, you know. If I would be levitating, you'd think I'm doing some David Copperfield trick or something. Like, okay, you know. So it's like there is no demonstration. But when you were with Jesus, there were demonstrations daily. 
daily, 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 daily for three years, it was flowing. And still people crucified him. They said, give us Barabbas. Fuck Jesus. Jesus can die. Give us Barabbas. No? After he did these things three years and a half non-stop. Like Jesus never stopped. He was healing even in the Sabbath day when the Jews were supposed to not do any actions. And he still went on and on and on and on. No? So this is how difficult it is to give faith. Jesus got crucified for creating faith. And then there comes an idiot and writes a book or something to destroy people's faith. Can you imagine how that looks from the standpoint of Shambhala or of the Buddhas of the past, present and future? That Jesus shed his blood so that people can increase their faith this much? And somebody is just coming and trying to destroy faith. Faith in themselves. Faith in yoga. Faith in the great gurus. Faith in Milarepa. And faith in Yogananda. And faith in... you know, It's okay not to have too much faith in a living person. Especially if they don't walk on water like Jesus. That's why in the Christian church, nobody is called saint during their lifetimes, to protect their ego and their modesty. Mother Teresa was canonized after death. Nobody ever in the history of the Christian church has been canonized during their lives. Never. And then, these such people are fighting to give faith, and then there comes one who tries to destroy it. Then if you were in Shambhala and you would see it, What would you think about it? How bad is that? Like destroying faith is a hundred times worse than slapping somebody on the face or things like that. Those are minor. Jesus didn't even care about some of these physical things. Yeah, yeah, this woman was a prostitute. Sure, stop doing this shit and now live a good life. It's over. It's all over. These little things are nothing. But to destroy faith, that's why he was pissed more at the Jewish priests. He said, you have corrupted the faith, and as a result of it, you don't go to heaven, and you also misguide the other people, so they won't go to heaven. He was really angry at those ones. Oh, that somebody was a tax collector and was a sinner in that society. Somebody was not respecting the Sabbath, that a woman was an adulteress or... Jesus, for this, he was nothing. Jesus was very sensitive to this issue. Who creates the faith and who destroys it? Try to think about what's happening in the Catholic Church recently, you know, in the last 30 years. There is, they discover here and there, a priest or some even bigger than a priest who is buggering little boys or who, when they were young, they were buggering little boys, girls, whatever they were, you know, and now it's exposed. So Jesus died on a cross. Hundreds and thousands of saints died in martyrdom. There were people who worked hard in monasteries for 50 years, praying, praying, fasting, fasting, to create faith on this planet, to support humanity with a bit of faith. And then you come and by being a sexual pervert or whatever you are, you destroy people's faith. The karma which results from that is much, much bigger 
then if you infringed on some minor things. That's, that's how it goes. And that's why uh, this is the story with all these healings. People wanted faith. They were curious. Like, give us another one. Give us another one. Let's see if you can do this one also. No? And here, of course, Jesus is doing one of the big ones. I will try to maybe conclude it, but it, if it gets into deep waters, I will leave it in the middle. So Jesus, they brought him sick people. Of course, he could not say, ah, I cannot. This one I cannot heal. Because people have said, aha, so you have also your limitations. You could heal that one and that. This one you cannot. Okay, God is not really with you, right? Because God can heal anybody, anytime, all the time. So Jesus, if he wanted to be in the character, he was relentless. He could not stop. Once he entered into that, he had to deliver to show that he was who he said he was. Or he, who he was going to say later that he was. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. The demons came out shouting, You are the Son of God. Because the demons knew who he was. People were blind. But the demons knew. And remember, demons came out shouting. There is a crisis, always. Exorcism is a very risky business and very extreme in many ways. But he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. So he didn't dialogue and say, really, you call me the son of God, you fucking bastard. Until five seconds ago, you were possessing this person. Like He didn't have a dialogue. You don't talk to the demons. You just tell them, shoo! Out! One word. Two words. You know, it's like, no, uh, let's entertain some conversation. No. Not with the evil. The evil is not worth your conversation. It's out. It's, you know, get behind me. No, there is no, that's the correct attitude. There is no dilly-dallying and let's try and let that, but no, there is no. It's like a sword blow. Go. No comments, no arguments, go. And of course, if you don't have that power, you don't do it. So, that's where it goes. So, he did not allow them to speak because he had not announced yet who he was and what he was going to do. So, right now in the beginning, Jesus is secretive about who he is, what he wants to do. He first wants to gain credit. He first wants to show what it is, and then people will start understanding who this guy can be, who such a person can be. <clears throat> At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Like, stay in Capernaum. We will make you the clown of Capernaum. You know, any time when somebody has a flu, we bring them to you and you heal them. People thought that Jesus is their Mickey Mouse, you know. That he will stay there like uh, you are an asset to our town. We'll build you a small house somewhere here. Stay. The mission of Jesus was way beyond Capernaum. If he would have stayed, he would have just remained some village taumaturgist, some miracle maker in some God-forgotten village somewhere. And, but he said, 
I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, which concludes this chapter. So it's very important that Jesus, although he was not saying who he was because he didn't want to provoke people yet, like, hey, really, you are the Messiah, you know. Even today, there are Orthodox Jews who, if you tell them Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago was the Messiah, they will stone you. They will throw stones at you. If you go in old Jerusalem and say this, they will throw stones at you. They would kill you if they can. No, because for them it's a blasphemy to say that Jesus was the Messiah. No, 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 he was not. We are still waiting for the Messiah. Okay, good hope. Keep waiting, let's see when he's coming. No, it's like, was Jesus or not? And Jesus wouldn't come and say such a big thing and say, oh, by the way, he said it in the first, if you remember, two lectures ago, two satsangs ago, he said it in his own town. He went back to the city of his mother, to Nazareth, and he told to people, the scriptures which talk about the Messiah are fulfilled now in your healing. Like, I am the Messiah. You are looking at it. And they were about to kill him. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. And he just went through them and so on. So Jesus knew it's a big deal, especially in that Jewish culture. It was a big deal to come with this. Even if it was the truth, as he thought it was the truth, Still, to tell the truth, it could cost you your life. And as such, in the first stage, he says, no, 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 no. It's better that people have a mystery about me. Who's this guy? Who is this guy? How can he do what he does? We've never seen anything like it. This guy just rebuked the fever, and the fever just disappeared. Are you crazy? Can somebody in this world rebuke fevers? Are you nuts? This guy was just healing 20 people non-stop like this and all of them were incurable, handicapped people and so on. Amazing. And then of course after he does this for one year, two years, then he starts saying, now you've seen enough, and this is who I am. And even then it causes a riot among people, but then he is separating those who believe him from those who don't believe him. And that's the end of it. So you can see from what we read tonight, we continue in the same uncompromising, wild style of Jesus in which life is very black and white in many, many ways and in which his spiritual drive is wild and total. This is, as I said, one of the things which makes Jesus so fascinating and so beloved. Paramahamsa Yogananda, he went to America to teach yoga. In those days, people were racistic. Paramahamsa Yogananda was dark in his skin. People in America, they said, who is this crow? Who is this ghost? Who is this dark-skinned person? Now he comes and he claims that he can teach us, the white people, who are superior in all respects to everything else. No, like, and then Yogananda, to teach yoga and to be in the good society and so on, he had to make a lot of compromises. Yogananda was a good politician in many ways. He was a smart Capricorn, very utilitarian, very down-to-earth, very skillful in many ways. And, uh, you know, he spoke good about some things. He said America is great and so on, although 
history has shown it not to be that spiritual and that great after all. But he kissed their ass, he buttered their hole, he said a lot of good things so that people will be moved and listen. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't bother with this. Jesus just whips people's ass big time and he says, if you don't like it, so sorry. You know, it's like that's the way it is. And uh, I'm not going to relent from this. So he goes relentlessly on his truth, which of course has a power. Because people, when they see such a person, they say either he was schizophrenic and totally nuts. Like either this guy was the biggest liar and megalomaniac that the world has ever seen. Or we've never seen anything like this man ever in history. Because, like, who can do that? Who lives like that? Who says words like that? Who pushes the envelope like that? Like, no, that's a person who didn't have any doubt. It's a person who was 110% into it. And thus, this is fascinating. Because people who don't have faith, they always feel attracted by one like Jesus, who gives them faith. They borrow from the faith of Jesus. By seeing and hearing a man like Jesus, it's almost like you have faith. The same is happening in yoga at a much smaller scale, of course. You come in a yoga school and you are with your teachers, gurus, you are with your peers who are practicing every day and this gives you faith. And then you go 10 years later home and they are like the hippies from the 1960s. In the 1960s, they did yoga with Shivananda and with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. In the 1970s, they said, uh, it was a great dream, but probably it was not true. Like they couldn't have faith anymore. They had faith when they were in the flow. When they were in the flow, they had faith. I know many people who when they were in Agama, they had faith. 20 years later, it's lost. It's gone. They forgot. Yeah. So in this way, it's the same with Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, you are forced to choose. You know, like, what is this? Is this guy cheating? Is this guy crazy? Or if not, it's like my soul goes on fire completely. Like, oh my God. You know, it's happening right now. I'm witnessing a cornerstone moment in the history of humanity. It's like amazing. And then, so that's why Jesus has this effect. And even many yogis value this effect because they say, yeah, if you had the faith of Jesus or the faith which Jesus gave to people, then you would have no doubts about your yoga. You'd have no doubts about your practice, evolution, you know, I've known people, they did yoga for three months, then they were careless and they got bitten by a mosquito, a daytime mosquito, and they got dengue. They went to the hospital and they forgot about yoga and everything. No. If you'd be with Jesus, you would say, rebuke my fever. No, it's a demonic thing. I want to practice. No. One of my many people speak about hepatitis, of how, a, how much of a debilitating disease it is. My roommate, when I was in the beginning of my Hatha Yoga practice, like after one year and a half, two years of Hatha Yoga, my roommate, a guy, 
who was my best friend in those days and we were practicing yoga together and our spiritual life was like he was my best friend in those days, he got infected with hepatitis by his girlfriend through sex. His girlfriend got hepatitis, she didn't know, and by the time she discovered, it was too late, he was getting it also. Two of the typical symptoms of hepatitis are, one, that your urine goes almost black, like really dark in color, and second, that your feces become yellow in color because of the excess of bile. So you have whitish, yellowish shit and dark brown urine. There are other symptoms such as the cornea of your eyes sometimes get yellow. That's why it's called in the folk, the folk people, they call it jaundice sometimes instead of hepatitis because you are getting yellow eyes and so on. So the girl, she had hepatitis. She went to the hospital because, of course, she was a student in the university. She went to the hospital. They put her on drugs. My friend, three days later, his shit got white, his urine got black. And then he went to our Hatha Yoga teacher in those days, who was one of these uncompromising persons, and he said, look, Veronica, my girlfriend, she's in hospital, she has hepatitis. I got it also, I'm sure, because I've seen this morning my feces and my urine. I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to take drugs. Whatever you tell me to do, I do. Can you help me? And the guru said, sure. And he gave him to do like four hours of Udhyana Banda and Nauli per day. I don't know who of you have tried one hour of Udhyana Banda just for a little exercise, you know. Four hours is not a joke. And when you have hepatitis and you are exhausted, it's like hell. This guy, my friend, he is a Leo and a man of an endless willpower and stubbornness. He just went home and started practicing on Manipura, especially with Yanabanda and Nauli. In three days, all the symptoms disappeared. He never had hepatitis anymore. He didn't take one drug. He didn't go to hospital. He didn't get consulted by a doctor. And five years ago, the government of Romania offered, had a sort of European medical initiative where they gave free medical tests to everybody if they want to take it. So he said, I went out of curiosity to take my medical tests. He said, perfect. I'm, every test came out perfect. And definitely my liver is the liver of a young man. I don't have any problem in my liver. This man had hepatitis. He didn't treat it. And he didn't lie in bed. Or he didn't know. He didn't have any convalescence. Any, he just was on his feet doing four hours of Udhyana and Nauli every day. Because his yoga teacher told him. Again, today, his yoga teacher for telling this, he might go to prison. Because he dares to interfere in the medical act. And to give advice while he is not a medical doctor. A medical doctor would have given my friend shitty advice. And his yoga teacher gave him brilliant advice. And my friend had the faith. In those days, he and I, we were in the flow. Like we're, we would have eaten shit. We would have walked on water if our yoga teacher would have invited us to walk on water. We would have done anything. That's the faith which Jesus commands. It's the faith 
of going full power, full power, to give this confidence. This is the lesson which you learn very, very much from Jesus. Enough about this. It's late enough. Thank you all for bearing all this with me. Again, I'm sorry for the delay. These days are very, very difficult for me administratively. We will continue in the coming weeks. And if these discourses produce in you some questions, remember you can always come to the Q&A on Tuesday, especially if you are in level 2 and up, and ask me those questions, either in writing, if you are too shy, or in direct voice, and I will try to continue to go further in the explanations of it. Enough of this. See you in the next meetings here in Agama.